Home now to go to the, the Word of God, if you will. Turn with me to Psalm 2, if you have your Bibles. Scripture will be provided for on the screen as they're passing out this, the outline sheet today. I just want to let you know that I've been somewhat troubled uh, by a, a recent trend. Uh, Brother Scott was so gracious to share the Word with us last Sunday. And then Brother Tim and Pastor Charlie in recent weeks, uh, they've actually been finishing well before 12 o'clock. And I'm not sure if that's a trend that I appreciate. I don't think they're taking enough time. But you will be happy to know that in recent days, I have been inspired by a new way of presentation. And so two sermons today, one's going to be the summarized version. One is going to be the, the regular sermon, and I'll do the short one first so that if you fall asleep during the second one, you'll at least get the summary. But when we look at Psalm 2, and I'm going to put this in ways in which even a layman can understand how this impacts our lives, that there's a small entity called mankind, and there's a larger entity called the eternal God. The eternal God's powerful. But the smaller entity mankind has chosen to rebel against the bigger entity God. And that's basically wrong. That's the summarized version of Psalm 2. This is not going to be a message in which I will look to prophecy teachers to sort of explain the world in which we live and how it relates to the end times. Uh, this is not my opportunity. Tim will be happy. He noticed on the chart there is no chart on the outline sheet today to kind of go through what the end times will look like and how uh, the Russian-Ukraine situation plays out in prophecy or anything like that, even though there are those out there who will be happy to gain your attention. But this is not what this message is about today. This message is about finding refuge in the Lord's anointed. Now, it plays itself out in the context of very troubling times. It plays itself out in ways in which the Bible seems to be coming to life in the world in which we live. And even though we may feel like it's becoming very intense now, there have been few generations throughout the course of mankind in which they could also say, man, it looks like the Bible is being fulfilled today. But again, what this message is about is finding refuge in the Lord's anointed. Psalm 2 begins in verse 1 by asking a somewhat rhetorical question. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is one of my favorite pieces within the Handel's Messiah the music that is applied to this text of scripture is very appropriate. I'm not going to do that for you today. You can just 
Spotify it or YouTube it or something. But this passage of scripture, because of my familiarity with that work from Handel, is one of the verses of scripture that's easy for me to refer back to and go through my mind. Why do the nations rage? And why do the people plot in vain? The term here used for nations is a term that's used often throughout the Old Testament. It's not necessarily speaking specifically about groups of people who have defined borders geographically and they live within those borders and that would be the nation. Uh, but it's a group of people. It's a group. It's a, it can be used to describe a swarm of bees or a flight of birds, but just an entity that is together, united. And it's often used within the Old Testament speaking about those groups of people who are not Israel. So when you see the term nations in the Old Testament, it's often God's way of speaking about those who are, no, or are not part of the biological or genealogy of Abraham. But the term people is a very general term, which includes all other groups of people. And the question here is, why do they rage? Why are they making such a fuss? Why are they making a bunch of racket? Why are they plotting things in vain? And this term for plotting is the same word that you may be familiar with from Psalm 1 in which the righteous man, he meditates on God's law day and night. That term meditate is the same word here that's translated uh, plotting. In other words, why is it that people sit around and meditate on how they can revolt against God? Why do they do this? Notice the position that they take. They, they set themselves, the kings of the earth set themselves. They, they take their stand. They, they place themselves in a position of their own making and their own wisdom for their own purposes. And they take counsel together. Uh, this is a description of what happens in the oriental world in which individual leaders would get together and they would deliberate as to what would be best for their relationship and then how they should handle the relationship with those around them. And so they set themselves up and they take counsel together. But notice the primary purpose and intent of them setting themselves up and counseling together. They're doing this against Jehovah. They're doing this against God. They're doing it not only against God the Father, but they're doing it against his anointed one, the chosen one, the Messiah. And what does this sound like? What does it sound like when people and rulers and individuals themselves get together and counsel together and try to figure out how can we thwart the Lord and his chosen one, Jesus Christ? How can we do that? Well, they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. 
Their plot, as determined by taking counsel together, is to break away from the bonds and the cords of the Lord's and his anointed's authority. Calvin puts it this way, they cast off the yoke of God. They don't want to be bound by God's law. They don't want to be held accountable to their creator. They don't want to follow his rules. They don't want to treat people the way he's commanded us to treat people. They don't want to serve a purpose which he gives for his glory. So they plot. They counsel together. They rage. Because they are against their God. Now the Bible speaks of different nations, of different groups of people who would fit this category. We, we know about the Egyptians, right? They, these are the ones who enslaved Israel uh, back after the Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. He, they were threatened. We know about the Assyrians who grew in prominence and would hold Israel captive and would ultimately take them captive. We know about the Babylonians that God used to judge his people because of their wickedness, who then themselves were wicked. We're told about the Greeks. We, we see the life within the Roman Empire. There are many other nations that are described throughout the book of Judges in Joshua, in which they were going into the promised land that were against God. History tells us of other cultures. We know about those who lived in the Far East and would eventually migrate their ways into the Americas over the course of time who were against God. There have been nations around the globe that have been established on an enslaved and tribal heritage, vain humanistic philosophies, false religions, we live in a day today where we got we have not so much bound or boundaried peoples, but just groups of very rich, powerful people. Things like the World Economic Council that seeks to make the world a better place in their eyes. We've even got groups that are part of a military. Uh, investment complex in which wars around the world are subsidized so that they could continue making money by making their weaponry. Something that President Eisenhower, as he was leaving office, warned the nation about because he could see the thing coming. But there are entities out there that are anti-God. Their wars have ensued and atrocities have been occurring because of godless or anti-God efforts to take dominion, that which truly belongs to God. All these things, even as we think about the Russian-Ukrainian issue that's going on today, can't help but think back to the words from James in chapter 4. While I realize within that context he's talking to the church, this a principle of any sorts of strife or warring that's going on. And why do we do that? Because of quarrels and why, why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? Is it not because of the passions that are within us? 
Does nobody cause you desire and you do not have, so you murder? You covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel? You don't have because you don't ask. In other words, you don't recognize the giver of all things. You want to take it in your own terms. It's, about, it's against God. Why do people do? Why do the nations raise and fuss to do these sorts of things? Why do the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel against the Lord? Why? Well, it didn't begin in our day. Genesis chapter 11. And the people, as they migrated from the east, and this is after Noah came off the ark. God reiterated his purpose for mankind to subdue the earth and to replenish the earth, be fruitful and multiply. That they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Even in chapter 11 of Genesis, we see that people are raging against God. We don't want to do what he tells us to do. It's our life. We read this morning. This continued on even through the life of Christ. From Acts chapter 4. And when Peter and John were released and they went and told about what had happened and they were talking about the sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth. And they quoted the very passage of scripture we're looking at today from Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take. You see, this was just fulfilling what the psalmist was speaking about in which the nations were raging even to the point of bringing Jesus Christ, the anointed one, to the point of death. And it's something that won't end anytime soon as long as the Lord tarries his return. For in Revelation chapter 17, speaking in prophetic terms, talking about the end of time in which there will be uh, they will, the beast and, and, the, and the ones who are represented uh, as the kings on the earth at time, they will give over their power to him so that, why? They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those who are, uh, are called and chosen and faithful, those who are with him. So this is not just something that the psalmist is seeing in his day. But this is something that has been going on since Genesis 3. And this is something that won't end until Jesus comes back and takes his rightful place. It's a reminder, and again, we can't seem to get away from Romans 1, but again, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Why? For Although they knew God, they knew there was a creator, but they didn't honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. So what happens? They become futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were dark and claiming to be wise. They became fools. Which again begs the question, why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot 
in vain. Why do they chase the wind with their dreams? An 18th century English Baptist theologian, John Gill, puts it this way. The phrases in general express their irreverence of God and the Messiah, their rejection Christ in his religion, their non-subjection to him, and their refusal to have him rule over them, and their disesteem and contempt of his gospel and of the ordinances of it and of the laws and rules of his government in his churches. And also they show the wrong notion that carnal men have of these things that whereas Christ's yoke is easy and his burden light, his gospel and the truths of it make men free from the slavery of sin and Satan and from a spirit of bondage. The true gospel liberty consists in an observance of his commands and ordinances. Yet they look upon these things as bonds and cords, as fetters and shackles, as so many restraints upon their liberty, which are not to be bore when, on the other hand, they promise themselves liberty in a disengagement from them. And in their enjoyment of their own lust and their sinful pleasures, whereas thereby they are brought into bondage and become the servants of corruption. In other words, what he's saying is they've taken the very thing that God has given them that provides liberty. The things that gives them the boundaries in which they can have a true fulfilling life. They have exchanged it. They have broken themselves off from those bonds and those cords in their words. And they exchanged it for bonds to their own sin and their own depravity and their own destruction. Missing the point that Jesus, his yoke, is actually, as he puts it, easy. His burden is light. That's the good news of the gospel, that even though all of us partake at one point in our life or another from the very beginning, we also, we want to break these bonds asunder. We also want to tear away these cords. But it's only by the grace of God that we can see that the good news is that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, that he liberates men from sin and Satan, and liberty is found in his commands. That's the good news. But you can't make you scratch your head and say, so why do the nations rage? Why do the people plot in vain? Why do they take counsel and set themselves against the Lord and his anointed one when he alone can give life and by his grace can give you life today if you are not already participating in that wonderful liberty in Christ Jesus? But not only do we have this question, we have a response from the Lord. Verse 4 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. Now, this is the anointed one talking because Jehovah, the Lord, says to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask 
of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of, your, of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This is just a reminder of what we read in Psalm 47, verse 8, that God reigns over the nations. God sits on his throne. Consider the contrast that we read about in the first three verses and what we read here in these next six. We have presented to us in the first three verses the kings of the earth. Verses four through nine, what do we see? He who sits in the heavens. The sovereign one, the, the majestic one, the creator, the sustainer of all things. He sits in heaven while they are on the earth. The first three verses we see, they set themselves, they take counsel. In verses 4 through 9, we see that the Lord holds them in derision. He, he laughs at them. It's, it's kind of, well, there's a lot of examples and illustrations that we can use, but I don't want to make fun of any particular group of people, particularly skinny people like me. But I'll go ahead and just surrender myself because you may find it hard to believe that when I was a teenager, I was skinnier than I am now. And when I would go and try to work out with the weights like the other guys that I hung around with, I was not quite up to the task. And they laughed. They held me in derision. They understood that it wasn't just a matter of somebody who could do something and they tripped and fell like, you know, we will laugh at people when they do that. But this is just something, Mark, why are you even trying that? You're not capable of, of pushing that off your chest. It's That's like 50 pounds. You can't push that off your chest. And for those of you who know what 50 pounds feels like, you're like, what? I can do that. Well, good for you. Uh, but anyway, so, but but that's the same thing. When you have those who are, setting themselves up and they're taking counsel as if they know everything, like they, they, they've got the wisdom that will change the world. And God's sitting up in heaven on his throne and, and like, are you serious? Are you serious with those thoughts? Are you serious with your plans? Do you really think that's going to accomplish anything? Don't you know that I'm the one who rules over you? And then lastly, let us burst. Let us break. Isn't that the sound of an obnoxious sinner? <laughs> yeah, I'd like to see you make me do that, God. I know what I want to do. I know what I, how I like to feel. I know what I'd like to have. You just try to stop me. And what does the Lord say to his anointed one? You shall break them and you shall dash them. It's an old picture from the Egyptians when Pharaoh would be upset with the nations around him. And in order to demonstrate his fury to his court, he would set up these jars of pottery. And he would label them with the names of the nations around that he was upset with. And he would take his scepter and he would smash them indicating that's what I'm going to do to those nations. And what does the Lord say to those nations and those peoples? 
who rage and plot. You will dash them pieces like a piece of pottery you will. Who is he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the son. Verse 6 says, For me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This is final will and testament talk. This is inheritance language. This is not God the Father saying to God the Son, you know what? Even though you don't exist right now, I'm going to beget you. You're going to have a beginning. But rather what he is saying, that this inheritance is going to be given as if you were my son. So the title is given to Jesus Christ, the Son of God, my son. I have begotten you. Here is what I'm giving you. And what is he giving to, to his son? The inheritance is the, the nations. That's his heritage. And while this is something that's linked to David, the king, as we see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, as David is coming towards the end of his life and his reign, the land is at peace. But he says, you know what? I need to build God a house. I need, I need to build a place so that they'll have a permanent place of worship. And God says, uh, no. I'm going to give that to someone else. But he doesn't just leave him with this emptiness of saying, well, why can't I just do this for you? Why does my son have to do it? The Lord says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and he will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, in the temporal sense, the Lord was speaking to David in the sense of his son Solomon, who would build the temple for him. There's only one problem with Solomon. He can't sit on the throne forever. Solomon is a sinful human being who's going to die. But this, what we call the Davidic covenant, speaks of the descendant of David, who just happens to be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, is the one who will sit on this throne forever. This is the good news that Paul was speaking to the church at Antioch about in Acts chapter 13. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. The resurrection is how Jesus is going to sit on the throne forever, right? Exactly. That's the good news. Also, as is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And, at, and as for the fact that he raised her for dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken it in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. This is a connection between the beginning of Scripture and the end of Scripture. This is the beginning of our hope in a king who will reign with righteousness in his wings. 
This is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ that was promised, as Brother Tim mentioned in his birth, 3,000 years ago. Fulfilled in the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when he returns again one day, will be ultimately fulfilled in him reaping the heritage that the Lord has promised to him in the ends of the earth. And at that point in time, he will what? Dash them in pieces with a rod of iron. He will break them. Hebrews chapter 1, again, speaking of Jesus Christ, the one whom in these last days we have heard from God, God has spoken to us by his son, that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the same as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which to any of his angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? No one. Why? Because he's the only one. He is the servant of God. He is the chosen one. He is the anointed one of whom all the nations are raging and the peoples are plotting against. You say, well, no, Mark, you don't understand world history. They were actually, uh, they're warring because this group of people took their land. Or no, they're warring over here because these people thought they were smarter than these people. And so they just kind of killed them all off. Or no, these people just wanted to purify. Or these people just didn't like the way the other people dressed. These people had political reasons. They had financial reasons why they were opposed to, to each other. No, what these people are doing are, is against God. They're warring among each other because of their own sinful lust for power. They have rejected God and they have rejected him and his ways. And they certainly could not care less about his purpose. So when we think about what's going on, whether it be in the Ukraine today, or whether we think about what's going on in China today, or whether we think about what's going on in South America today, or whatever was going on in Canada last month, or whatever was going on, it's just a demonstration of the nations raging against God. How do I know that? Because the word of instruction given to them places the focus on God. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. A word to all leaders, great and small, is simple. Serve Jehovah. Don't just put it on your coins or on your buildings. But truly serve the Lord. Rejoice with trembling. If you understand 
the holiness of God. If you understand his perfect righteousness and you understand the grace that enables you through the blood of Jesus Christ to approach him freely, you can rejoice while still trembling about the reality of who God is. That doesn't mean you come timidly. As a matter of fact, what does the writer of Hebrews say? You boldly, with confidence, approach the throne of grace. But understanding that the power is great. You know, it's one thing for a person who works for the power company to get up in the truck, take the ladder off, put it up against the power line, climb up, and start handling something that can truly devastate his existence. But if they insulate themselves, they've got the right boots on, they have the right gloves on, they have the right hat on, they have the right jacket on, they can work with confidence. Does it mean that they no longer think that the electricity is powerful? Does it mean that they stop for a second thinking that, you know what, you know what I've got these incredible gloves on. You know, that's, you know, that's destroying the power. No, it, it makes them that much more aware of the power. But they can do that work with confidence. And they can rejoice. And then kiss the sun. Again, an oriental way of paying homage. Respect. I don't know of many nations, if any, in our world that do this. Do you? I would love to think that the nation that we live in is really, really close, but that's only because we compare ourselves to the other nations. And that's no different than a sinner saying, you know what? I'm a sinner, but you know what? I'm not as bad as that person over there. That gets you nowhere closer to heaven. Serving in the Lord with fear, rejoicing with trembling, kissing, paying homage to the Son. But there's also a word for us all. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember I told you at the beginning, this message is about finding refuge in the anointed one. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Remember Jesus is the one who said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you will, what? Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Reminded again what John says in his first letters to the church in chapter 2. Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him at his coming. Let me ask you today, are you taking refuge in him today? You say, you know, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. 
Well, Psalm 2 gives us a wonderful picture of what it looks like for someone to take refuge in the anointed one. Do you believe that verses 1 through 3 are truly describing the vanity of the nations and the people? Let me put it another way. Do you really think there's a reason for God to laugh them in derision? Or do you get overwhelmed sometimes in thinking they're a little bit more powerful than we even want to give them credit for? I mean, that ruler, he's, he's, he's awful powerful. He's got a lot of people behind him. He's got a lot of money. He's got a lot of resources. He, he may be able to do exactly what he wants to do. And we forget that God says to the psalmist, why are those nations wasting their time with their plans? But you don't understand, Mark. People are dying. People are under harsh circumstances. You don't understand. Absolutely, I understand that that's the case. But also understand that God is the one who is sovereign over this. That God is the one who rules over the nations. And that if I take my refuge in him as opposed to in good rulers or satisfactory rulers or agreeable rulers, or if they agree, if my wisdom matches up with their wisdom, no, if I find my refuge in him, the word of God tells me I'm blessed. That I can look at these nations. I can look, I can look at Vladimir Putin right now. And as much devastation that he's bringing upon the world, not just in Ukraine, I could look at China and their leadership. I could look at some of the crazy stuff that's going on in our leadership. And think, man, they're raging. And their plans. Their wisdom. The counsel that they are producing and the results of this counsel for them. Is, is threatening. It's dangerous. And it is. But it's in vain. That's how we'll know we're relying on the Savior. That's what we can say with confidence. Why do the nations waste their time? Why does they take counsel together? Why do they want to break away from the bonds of God? God's going to win. God's going to win. He's the king. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. So whether we see something happening in the news today or whether we're concerned about what's going to be in the news tomorrow, let us with gladness and rejoicing before God Say with the psalmist, why? Why are they wasting their time? Because ultimately, the anointed one, Jesus Christ, is going to come, the rod of iron, and he will dash them into pieces like a piece of pottery. Are you taking refuge in him today? I trust that you are. I'd like for us to close our service by singing a song that we have sang in the past, 
It may not be the most familiar song to you, but it's a song that will address our joy in the one who has everything in control, the Ancient of Days. So the nations raise, kingdoms rise and fall. There's still one king reigning over all. So I will not fear, for this truth remains, that my God is the ancient of days. Let's stand together as we say.